It's Wednesday, November 16th, 2022. This is the Kelly Letter Podcast, and I'm Jason Kelly. It's good to be back. I missed you over the past five weeks and appreciate the many emails I received saying that you missed me. I like this community we have going here, and I don't like stepping away, but sometimes I just have to do it. At least I'm back now, and on the other side of quite a divide. If you look at all that's happened in the past five weeks, it's hard to believe this is still the same calendar year, much less just over a month later. It seems like we crossed over a a Rubicon of sorts last week into a new phase of the economic and financial situation. And I think it's giving us a preview of what we're going to be contending with in 2023. That's what I want to look at today. And these these kind of look-aheads are notorious for turning out to be absurdly off the mark later. But the ones from a year ago were actually fairly fairly accurate, thinking that, that inflation was going to be harder than the Fed was expecting, projecting that interest rates would be rising, that that would cause trouble for the market, that people would worry about risk of recession, and so on. Longtime listeners and readers of mine know that I am, am deeply skeptical of any kind of forecasting, and I didn't pay much attention to those from a year ago. But I will have to give, give props to the forecasters who said these were the issues we'd be contending with in 2022, because they certainly were. And it's, it's not overstating the, the case to note that the Fed itself was caught off guard by, by these issues, particularly inflation. And I would say a year ago, nobody saw that, that, that Russia was going to invade Ukraine, and that just threw a whole other monkey wrench into the inflation picture, not to mention the geopolitical picture, which, and of course the human, human rights and suffering picture, which is, is a whole separate issue from the financial impact. But what I want to look at now is what we're probably going to be contending with in 2023, with the upfront caveat that things might come out of the blue and things might not turn out to be exactly as, as this lineup goes. But what happened last week that, that made it seem like, like we may be going into a new phase is that we, we saw confirmation that inflation in the United States has probably peaked and we are going to be going down from here. And so there's great speculation on what that's going to mean. The Fed may finally have baked in enough interest rate increases to, to put the kibosh on inflation. And we're going to see growing impact from the interest rate increases that have already happened. And we're already hearing commentary from various Fed-attached officials, even ones that are not voting. And you never quite know who, who to listen to. But the, the Fed speak has been tending toward the need for a pause to reassess. That's a new phase. We've been in a very aggressive monetary tightening cycle this year, and it has taken its toll on financial markets, as you well know. Our plans, the signal plans, I mean, have jumped on that with buy signals into this, but are, are all in now and hoping for a recovery. So let's, uh, <laughs> let's hope along with them. The, the Fed will be pausing, most likely, um, but, but that probably doesn't end the risk that we're going to see on that front because the speculation will go on <laughs> ad infinitum, I assume. And then we also saw China announce that it's going to be backing off from its zero COVID policy. As with everything out of China, we can't trust this very much. It's probably going to go slowly. There are personalities involved, mainly Xi Jinping, the president of China, uh, for whom 
the zero COVID policy is 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 a pet initiative, and he doesn't like to give those up easily. And I just uh, don't just get tired of these countries that are run by personality cults and these these strongman leaders. It's so exhausting and so immature and so out of sync with the progress of of civilization. But here we are dealing with strongman goons even in 2022, and we will be doing so into 2023. So let's go through a look at, at what the big issues are likely to be next year and, and what the odds are for us and, and all investors going into them. We will start with um, looking at just the, the, the situation that the Fed has created here. The, the high-speed interest rate hikes um, are, are something we haven't seen in, in decades. So we'll start with a look at that. The, the Federal Reserve has, has not done its reputation any favors this year. I am not a Fed hater. I am not an end-the-Fed kind of guy. That was the title of Ron Paul's book from about a decade ago. I, I've never been that type. I think the Fed is, is, consists of very smart people dealing with very tricky situations in a zero-validity environment. And so I don't like the Monday morning quarterback, the Federal Reserve, very often. Which is why it probably comes with more impact for me to say that the Fed has really not done its reputation any favors over the last year. You know, two years ago, when the Fed was saying that inflation was transitory, I thought its argument made sense. And I should put that right up front. I'm not, I'm not saying oh, I knew what was going on, just the Fed didn't. No, I, I thought the Fed had a, a cogent argument saying that supply chains were shut down, the economy was temporarily paused for the pandemic. Now it's opening back up. So once those supply chains get going again, we're going to see plenty of goods in the stores, prices, things are going to work normally. So this is just a temporary bump in inflation that's going to go away. I would go beyond saying that it was a cogent argument to saying that I think they were right, actually. And I think what happened was that the, the type of inflation we have been dealing with transmogrified. And it was that supply chain kind of bump inflation in the beginning. The Fed was right to say that would go away. But then it was replaced with more entrenched inflation that came from other sources, such as the invasion of Ukraine, which sent gas, oil prices up to about a one thirty per barrel. That was a huge impact on inflation, and that had nothing to do with the pandemic. And then companies were very clever to notice that the inflation narrative had taken over in media and they started expanding margins by raising prices the same way gas stations always do. Whenever there's any kind of dust up in the Middle East, instantly gas prices go up because it can. And everybody thinks, oh, well, sure, there's that whole issue going on over there in the Middle East. So, of course, gas prices had to go up, which is just simply not the case. Almost no sort of geopolitically reactive price increases are ever sensible. It's just companies taking advantage of the media narrative for people that don't know why it's not sensible. And we saw that. And the Fed had to come to realize that, that, wow, a couple things have made this, the, the transitory, made the jump from transitory inflation to more entrenched inflation. It was that higher oil from, from the Ukraine invasion, the, the higher price of oil from the Ukraine invasion, which, which made ordinary people see inflation all around them by looking at gas station prices. And then food prices went up. That was somewhat supply chain issues, but also contributed, uh, also affected by the, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, because both of those countries do contribute to world food stocks. And then, and then uh, after that, we, we see companies that raised, raised prices and unemployment was not 
not going up quickly enough, uh, which <laughs> normally don't want that, but the Fed did want unemployment to, to go up so that people would stop spending as much. But people's bank accounts were packed from pandemic support. And so that, that wasn't offset. And so I think that that supply chain affected initial wave of inflation really was transitory. But just about the time that ramped down, and it really already has, if you look at stores, I mean, the supplies are back. Things are flowing again. China's not fully reopened yet, but, but the world moved on to other supplies. Uh, Apple, for example, already announced that it's going to be moving some of its production from China to India. And other countries have talked about diversifying their supply chains. Onshoring became a thing, too. So uh, we, we really got past that initial supply chain type of inflation to this other type of entrenched inflation. Well, the Fed, the Fed panicked, realizing, holy smokes, you know, the main thing a central bank is supposed to do is keep, keep prices stable. And we completely whiffed this one here at 8 9% inflation. Oh, my gosh, we're going to be the laughing stock of the couple decades here. So they went in the other direction. We had the, these, these three-quarter point rate hikes just back to back, the whole year dominated by this. We go from 0% Fed funds rate a year ago to, to heading toward 5% uh, in, in the next couple months. We're at 4% now. That, that is a, a very, very quick change of change of fortune on the interest rate front. I do need to emphasize we're still not in any kind of dangerous interest rate territory, but this is just quite a dramatic change of pace. And it's it's probably not going to go away immediately. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it looks as though, well, m many different firms are forecasting we're going to have a, a genuine U.S. recession in the second half of next year, a couple million Americans losing their jobs, and the labor market is still out of balance, um, probably because of the pandemic. And economists say that the, the, the natural rate of unemployment, which is the, the level it needs to be in order for inflation to, to be under control or at least benign, it might be higher than what it's been in recent years. And I mentioned this in the letter saying that the Fed's target of 2% might end up being fudged up to 3 or even 4% on the, the inflation target front. And we've, we've already heard, heard Federal Reserve officials talk about that, that, well, we, you know, we may need to uh, start relaxing our, our tightening policy before inflation gets to our target. That's probably what the early talk would be to eventually saying, actually, the inflation target is now 4%, not 2% for various factors, and then it'll get explained away. We may be heading toward that, but... But if it's true that the natural rate of unemployment is going to be higher than what it's been in the past, and, and I should point out that Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, has said that's a possibility, then we could well see the, the Fed funds rate go to 5%, even all the way up to 6%, and stay there longer than we thought, which could, could send the U.S. into recession, as many economists are already forecasting, and normally, one, at least I, would tend to side with the Fed and say, well, the Fed doesn't think it's going to happen. They think they can pull off a soft landing. But the Fed doesn't have a whole lot of credibility left in this cycle. So I, I really don't know. And we don't need to forecast this. The point of, of today's rundown is just to say that issue is not gone. We probably have reached peak inflation in the United States but this is a complicated picture, and if it's going to take longer for unemployment to get to a level where uh, it needs to be for inflation to come down significantly, 
then this fight could go on a lot longer. And I, I'm, I'm not convinced that financial markets, the stock market particularly, needs to go down much more to account for this, especially if, if CPI inflation has stabilized and we're in and or, or is coming down. And we're going to see other parts of the economy coming down as well. I think the stock market is probably already priced in recession. But that's also another question mark. The point today is simply that we're not done with higher interest rates. We don't know where the terminal rate is going to be. And we really don't know how quickly the lagging uh, effect of, of previous rate hikes is going to kick in. And we're going to see a bigger effect on the inflation picture so that the Fed relaxes. So that's issue number one, which should be darn familiar since it has been issue number one all year in 2022. Now, along with rising interest rates, we reintroduce the issue of sovereign debt risk. This, this has been something we hadn't had to think about for a while because interest rates have been down so low, near zero for so long, that the countries went kind of nuts at taking advantage of that to, to pile on the spending programs and give out the goodies to, to the political constituents. And we, we've, we've seen the result of that. When you look at the, the, the aggregate debt, owed by the group of seven developed economies, it was 81% as recently as 2007. Now it's 128% of that GDP. And there was a time not that long ago when 100% of GDP was considered the line you could not cross. So we're, we're in the red zone traditionally, but I should mention that be very careful regarding warnings in sovereign debt land. I live in Japan. I am talking to you today from Japan. And I have seen so many people wrong about Japanese debt. I remember when Japanese debt got to 100% of GDP and the chorus said, that's it, ring the bell, game over, nobody comes back from this. The world's second largest economy at that time is now done. You know, put, put a, <laughs> you know stick a fork in this one, it is done. Well, over the ensuing many years, the debt has continued rising, and Japan is fine. JGBs, Japanese government bonds, have not cratered. The country has not gone bankrupt. There has been no terrible knock-on effect as a result of this. What to make of that? That... Sovereign debt can just go as, as high as it needs to go? I don't think so. That goes against my grain. But J Japan is at 260% of GDP now, and it's fine. So some people are saying, apparently sovereign debt just doesn't matter, and we're going to keep going up. What does it mean when a country goes bankrupt, and they, they don't even seem to go bankrupt very often? I, I don't have the answer, and I, I don't want to be a Pollyanna about this and just think we can all, every country can go to 1,000% of GDP because at some point you really do kind of hit tilt and, and money means nothing, and this <laughs> certainly cannot help the inflation issue if all countries are going to go to multiple hundreds of percent of GDP on the debt front. So I don't really know, though, when this is going to matter because it has not mattered in Japan yet. And in fact, the people who have bet against Japan, that is, bet against the Japanese government bond market, they are done. They didn't survive that. That's why it's nicknamed the Widowmaker Trade. Those who have bet that Japan's high level of sovereign debt would crater its sovereign bond market 
were totally wrong and have lost fortunes in the process and have been have have died uh, in, in trading terms. That's why it's called the widowmaker trade. Nonetheless, we are going into another phase where higher interest rates are introducing sovereign debt risk, credit crises, crunches, weird things happen when when the playing board changes all at once. And and that's what we've seen in the last year and we're going to continue to see into 2023. Of course, there are a lot of small countries where this this seems to come up and we've had to you know, deal with a lot of those, the, the tiger currency crisis and various other ones over the years. And they seem to just be swatted down because those countries don't matter much to global GDP. One that does matter to global GDP, who is back in the headlines, is Italy, where uh, the debt service cost is probably going to reach 7% of Italy's GDP in another seven years or so from about 3% three years ago. So a more than doubling in a, in a decade is, is not good. So we could see some sovereign debt default risk in Italy, and Italy does matter because it would, it's, its collapse, if that were to unfold, would be a big challenge for the European Union. We'd see the, the European Central Bank get involved, and there's a lot of contagion risk from that. And even even when a country that's a tiny percentage of GDP, like Greece, I used to make fun of the the, the you know Greece going bankrupt because it's like, what are we all going to lose? Some olive oil? And I know that's not the most respectful way to look at Greece, but it, it just didn't matter in the GDP picture. But it was enough to rattle markets. And things that don't really matter on a spreadsheet end up mattering a lot perception wise. I would argue, for example, that the pandemic never mattered to the degree that countries overreacted. But because of that overreaction, we created the world economy. And now we're going to be dealing with it for several years. So these things can matter. Even if we get some small country that has a currency crisis, um, even a big enough hedge fund going bankrupt can cascade through the financial markets. So if we start seeing genuine sovereign debt crises, that could cause a great deal of volatility in in financial markets. And the recent uh, skyrocketing of interest rates does does amplify this risk. Now, the United States is not in danger of, of any kind of debt default. But what we are coming up to next summer is... Get ready for it. Mark your calendar, Americans. Another debt ceiling debate. Another posturing by politicians around this. The most likely one next summer looks to be that 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 um, recently elected Republicans looking to make a name for themselves, especially in in the House of Representatives, are going to talk about how we need to cut spending programs. And Democrats who do have control of the Senate and do have the White House are going to push back against that. So this will be another one of those, you know, made for TV dramas that goes down to the wire and, you know, the country's credit rating is on the line. And you've seen it all before. And it looks like we're heading back to that, a repeat of that whole thing again. Uh, Is the U.S. going to go bankrupt? No. Is it going to default? No. Are we going to go past the deadline? No. But enough of the saber rattling around the issue could also create some volatility. And so you can watch for that. Here in Japan, speaking of Japan, um, something else is going on. The, the, the country's been at zero interest rates for so long, people don't know what you mean when you say interest rate. The, the, the gov- Bank of Japan governor is named Haruhiko Kuroda, and his term ends in April. That's the end of Japan's fiscal year. We don't know who's going to be next. Probably not him, but not necessarily not him. But anyway, wh- whoever comes next is going to have a big choice to make. 
Do they keep the zero interest rate going further, which could endanger the yen? It's already down some 15% against the dollar this year, and it was already kind of weak against the dollar, weak in dollar terms, I should say, not not against the dollar. Um, you know, what, what are they going to do? Keep the interest rate down there and watch the yen just collapse further or go ahead and start raising interest rates? Well, if they do the latter, you're going to see that JGB discussion come back and, and that could be quite volatile. If, if people think there's even a, a small risk of Japan's government bond market collapsing, that would be a major source of volatility, I would think. Uh, Japan is the third largest economy in the world. And if it were to go bankrupt in, in financial market terms, then uh, that, that I mean, the cascading would be enormous, way bigger than Italy, way bigger than a hedge fund. So watch for that. Do I think it's likely? No, I don't. I don't. And I don't even think Japan will change much from its zero interest rate policy. If anything, it'd, it'd be national news. Everybody would be talking about it for months if they raise the interest rate by a tenth of a point. I mean, you just wouldn't believe how, how stuck on zero interest rates this country is. So I don't think that's a big risk, but it's there. And beyond that, there are all the small economies that are just, I mean, less than 5% of GDP probably where we could see things like currency currency collapses and and sovereign debt risk too. Again, nothing huge, but the perception could be there and contagion could be brought up. Um, retirement funds, hedge funds, that kind of thing. So keep an eye on this. Debt risks are back because interest rates have gone much higher in a short period of time. Then we come to the housing market, and not just America's housing market. Um, around the world, housing markets got way overvalued from Canada, New Zealand, Australia, parts of Europe, parts of Asia. We, we, we've seen the housing market shoot the moon, <laughs> and it, they've it probably got farther to go. Now that interest rates are higher, people can't afford to pay the higher prices that have still stuck around for houses. So it's it, hard to know how this is going to unfold and I've seen many different forecasts. It seems to me the median expectation for the U.S. housing market, restricting ourselves to just that, would be a 15 to 20% drop in prices to bring mortgages down into where they're actually affordable for people again. That's pretty big. And that, that could be a, a crisis on its own. Um, however, it, it wouldn't be sudden. I mean, the, the housing has been slowing down all year. Uh, mortgages are, are are up to six to seven percent from from three percent a year ago. That that's a huge change. So everybody has seen this coming, but uh, sellers are stubbornly holding on to those higher prices, and that probably won't last. And it might be a cascade all at once. But a fifteen to twenty percent drop in the average nationwide selling price would would be big. I'm not sure yet whether that would be perceived as good or bad news. The way it could be good news is that the Fed would say, well, we're definitely done raising rates. I mean, with housing going down 20%, uh, <laughs> we don't need to put any heavier weight on this economy's shoulders, and that could be the end of tightening. In that sense, it would be good news for financial markets that are already thinking, hey, we've reached peak inflation, so we might not get much more tightening from the Fed. And so if housing does continue the way it's gone and we do get a 20% drop, I think that'd be pretty good odds of slowing the Fed down, and that could be good news. The bad news would be housing is a huge part of the U.S. economy, so almost certainly a 20% drop in the, the, the na national average selling price of homes would trigger a recession, I, I guess. 
And but would that surprise people? I don't know. They're already forecasting recession in the back half of 2023. So who knows? But just be aware that housing is slowing down, is projected to continue slowing down. And it's not going to be affordable at today's interest rates until prices go down about 15 to 20 percent. Then we get to China. China has has shifted into low gear all through the pandemic. And, and part of that was its zero COVID policy, which most analysts of the from the healthcare sector to the financial sector to the political sector across the board, almost nobody agrees with this zero COVID policy. It's it's pretty nuts for something that's become endemic. I mean, that's like saying, you know, we have zero tolerance for the common cold or zero tolerance for influenza, something that comes back every year. This is endemic. It means it's just part of life now. It's, it's chicken pox, it's flu, it's the common cold. So for China to be sticking with this zero COVID policy is, is pretty weird. And it's taken a, a toll on the economy. Um, the, the, the country did say that it's starting to relax that zero COVID policy last week, but there are many skeptics around that. Many who just say that there's, there's no way they're going to lift that on a dime. It's Xi Jinping's pet policy. They're going to keep it around a while. They're, they're, they're certainly not going to just say it's over, done, moving on, wash their hands, and, and that's it. It's going to be a slow ramp down, which is going to put quite a crimp on China for a while. Here again, is this good or bad news? <laughs> Okay, for the global economy, we don't want China to slow down because that impacts supply chains, etc. But on a couple of other fronts, a Chinese economic slowdown could be good. First of all, it might finally get the world to reduce its dependence on China, which I think is a terrible thing. China's a bad place. I mean, let's just come out and say it. It's a communist country. It's it's a dictatorship. It has it, it took away democratic freedoms in Hong Kong. It's, it's a dreary place. If you've ever been there, you probably couldn't wait to get out. There's, it's, it's a bunch of lying and cheating and backstabbing and, and, and nefarious ways to get ahead. And it, it's a culture that rewards theft more than it rewards innovation. And Chinese people, many good ones, of course, but the culture there needs a complete page one rewrite. And I don't know how it's going to get there without collapsing economically. Beyond that, there's the Taiwan risk. This is huge. You know, the, the media were touting this week that, that President Biden and, and President Xi met, and it was, it was happy. They, they smiled at each other as they shook hands, and they agreed to compete but not, not go to war with each They didn't agree to not go to war, but let, let's compete with each other but fairly and try to fix the world economy. Anybody who has dealt with China much was just smirking, saying, what a crock. We sure hope in the background Joe Biden has some sensible people who have actually dealt with China and can tell him, go ahead and smile for the cameras, but do not for a second trust this country. Certainly not Xi Jinping. So in that sense, oh, well, I forgot to mention that even during that supposedly happy glad-handing session for the cameras, China said, well, hey, there's no compromise on Taiwan. That is the red line. We do not cross over that. That is central to our policy. That is the core of our core interests that we must retake Taiwan. Well, that's great, considering Taiwan doesn't want to be retaken. Japan doesn't want it retaken. The United States doesn't want it retaken. That seems like a recipe for disaster to me. So if 
China does slow down economically and it can't build as build up its armaments as much. It can't continue with its designs on, on Taiwan. Maybe this is good geopolitically. Maybe we can avoid, postpone, forestall a war for as long as, as possible. That would be good because I'm pretty sure a U.S.-China outright hot war over Taiwan would be bad for <laughs> just about everything, including financial markets, I, I assume. Um, but also, a, a Chinese slowdown should get the world to move away from its dependence on China for supply chain, start working with other countries from, boy, I don't know, Vietnam is a rising star in Asia. India uh, is, is wonderful on the tech front, so a lot of American big tech and, and global big tech could be moving operations from China to India. Maybe Japan, South Korea. How about Taiwan itself? You know, there are a lot of other places we can go that don't support the regime that's that's planning to go to war. Uh, so I'm really not sure what's good news or bad news out of China. But you should be aware as an investor that China's zero COVID policy is probably going to linger a bit longer, put a weight on growth. And the estimates for Chinese growth are, are pretty low. Some of them are, are, are well under 3%, which is a pretty big deal for the, the country that, that forecasted itself to grow 5.7% in, in 2023. It's probably going to be somewhere on the order of a third of that. So that, that's going to hurt the global economy, which could end up hurting investments. But like I said, I'm really not sure if that's bad news or not, because maybe U.S. companies in which we invest in our plans, even the multinationals, are going to do better by lessening their dependence on, on China and, and, reducing the, and, and benefiting from a reduced risk of China starting a hot war that draws in the United States. Who knows? For now, just be aware that, that China is going to be slowing down its growth for a while now because of that zero COVID policy and also its collapsing housing market. Those are the two things that are weighing most heavily on China. Finally, we come to Europe. Europe has a problem in its dependence on Russian gas. And we're going into the winter months it looks like the, the, the high cost of, of gas and oil is going to weigh very heavily on Europe, more heavily there than anywhere else. You've heard me talk about this before, and it's been in media all year as everybody's looked forward to the winter. Well, here we go. Things are cooling down. The, uh, boy, you know, the still lingering dependence on Russian gas is going to come back to bite, even though the, the continent has been preparing to get through this winter as, as well as it can without that Russian gas, but it can't quite do it. And the European Central Bank has said there's a good chance of tipping into recession. The, it seems like the, the average economic forecast here is that GDP of the block will go down by about 0.1% next year. Well, that's pretty bad for the global economy. And when you tie this in with the last section, if, if, well, look at the big three. The United States may go into recession because of the Fed's high interest rates. The, the, the European bloc, the European Union, could go into recession because of high energy costs over this winter, and China could go into recession or at least a, a big slowdown because of its, its zero COVID policy and also its collapsing housing market. Uh, Japan could see some issue if it decides to raise interest rates as well, and then it cripples its, its government bond market. So all of this could lead to a pretty rough 2023 for the global economy. Those seem to be the big issues from, from my perspective. I, I'm still not 
sure that we haven't got enough of this priced in, though. And some good news could come out of this, uh, and, and that would cause a recovery in financial market prices, particularly American stock prices. If, if, if investors are aware of these issues, and they already are, the recession in the U.S., the recession in Europe, the recession in China, let's just leave it at those three potential recessions. If those are already priced in, as was a forever tightening, or at least much farther tightening Fed because of inflation, and now we see that backing off. Last week, we see its peak inflation in the United States. We see that China's backing off from its zero COVID policy. And what if we got some other good news later? What if we, we find out that, that it's, a, it's a warmer than expected winter, so Europe doesn't, doesn't get, get crushed as much by high gas prices this winter? What if, indeed, inflation has peaked in America and it comes down a lot and employment doesn't have, we don't have to un see 2 million people lose their jobs in order to get through this, and the Fed really does pull off a soft landing. It recovers from its rough, rough journey through this period so far, and it gets back on track and things are okay. That would be unexpected good news. And, and China may... I don't know. This slowdown in China, I don't know what the good news would look like out of China. Does anybody? But let's just say the economy slows down. China starts cooperating a lot more with people. It doesn't want to, it doesn't ratter, rattle the saber to invade Taiwan. It stops stealing as much. It realizes the world is moving on and it panics. And what if the world really does move on and China just loses its strength there? And, and uh, I, I, yeah, I don't know. It just seems like there are quite a few ways for there to be good news out of China since it's been so bad for so long. Maybe even, as as my favorite China-watching friends have indicated, China itself will collapse. It happened to the Soviet Union, right? That uh, China's military is not as strong as they project all the time. Half their ships are are a joke compared to real blue water navies like the United States. And uh, the economy itself, uh, people move on quickly, semiconductors coming out of Taiwan and, and uh, supply chains moving elsewhere. We've rather work with Vietnam. How's that for a change of fortunes in Asia? I could go on. This, this requires a whole episode, I suppose. But it just seems that there are quite a few ways the situation could be less awful out of China. And that would be a surprise. Some good news for once out of there. If any of these stories or maybe all of these positive spins on things come true, then we could see a pretty decent recovery next year, which would be, I have to say, historically par for the course. Following these midterm elections in which we did get divided government in Washington, that's all the stock market cares about, spare them the political details, then uh, we, we should be getting a pretty substantial recovery. His, historically speaking, that's, that's how it's gone. The third year of a president's term has been good. That's also after the midterms. Various other things are lining up nicely to be bullish. So these are the risks to look at. Um, but I think a lot of the downside has been priced in. If we get some good news on any of these, that could help, which would be par for the course historically, given where we are in the presidential cycle and the midterm cycle. So some good news there. Thank you for listening. Again, it is good to be back. This is the Kelly Letter Podcast, and I'm Jason Kelly. It's been a while, so allow me to remind you to subscribe to the podcast from any of the easy links up at jasonkelly.com to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and whatever, whatever other platforms you like to listen on. 
I continue to believe this is a great time to join the Kelly letter. We are still near the lows of the year, near the lows of the cycle, but we've come back up off the bottom, which could give people more confidence to, to join these plans that work well over time with simple price reaction. I send new letters every Sunday morning, so if you get on the list soon, you can, you can see the next one coming out. Current subscribers, thank you, as always, for doing business with me. Let's enjoy this continued recovery. I hope that, uh, <laughs> that it sticks with us. And based on what I talked about today, I think there are pretty good chances of that happening. I will see you Sunday. <laughs>